Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time to get started. We've got a great show. David Wheaton's going to come on the show in just a second, and I'm looking forward to meeting for the first time Mike Napa. He's written a book called Matthew, Questions and Answers for the Curious Soul. Hour two, we return to our Red Word series, and Dr. Jeremiah Johnston is going to teach on John chapter 11. So it's going to be a great day. I hope you can spend all two hours with me. David Wheaton said that he wanted to do a um, 12-part series on embracing a Christian worldview. I enthusiastically said yes, and he's here with part four. David, welcome. Good to be with you today, Bill. Yeah, as because we are in part four, maybe we can go back and just t- touch on some of the highlights of part three. Yeah, we, we started out last time finishing up on what the foundation of a Christian worldview is, a foundation, sort of think of a house, you, you lay the concrete foundation, everything else rests on that foundation. And what we said is the foundation of a Christian worldview is basically that God exists and he speaks. And this is found in the very first couple verses in the Bible. Uh, and that the, the, we know God exists and he speaks four different ways uh, because of creation. We just, you, you see there's creation, there must be a creator. In our conscience, we know right from wrong. Who put that inside of us? Uh, we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was the living embodiment of the, the creator. And then also God's special revelation to us is his word, is, is scripture, is the Bible. And we talked about the fact, Bill, that the Bible claims many things, but four of the things we mentioned that it's inspired by God, it's inerrant without error, it's immutable, it's fixed or unchangeable, and it's infallible, it's trustworthy, it cannot fail. Amen. And the Bible gives all kinds of evidence uh, about this. It doesn't just say these things. If you look at the accuracy of Scripture, that nothing has ever been proven wrong in Scripture. You would think of all this long book, something would be verifiably, provably wrong. It's never been the case. It has an incredible unity. They have 66 books of the Bible written by 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. I mean, try to write a unified book with one theme, with that many different authors over that long of a period of time, you'd never be able to do it. Except the Bible does have one unified theme. It's about God's plan of redemption for us through Jesus Christ. You look at the prophecies, Bill, the dozens of prophecies made hundreds of years in advance precisely come true. The integrity of Scripture, what we, the Scripture we have today is 99.9% matches the earliest possible copies, and there's thousands and thousands of copies that verify this. So you put all this together and you just— the foundation of the Christian worldview is one of them is the Bible itself, and we can trust that we have a foundation to build upon. And then just one more thing that we talked about last time, we just we didn't get into it, we'll get into it today, but we introduced it talking about going from the, the foundation or the base to the, if you think of a house again being built, like the framework, the, the four walls, or we call them the fundamentals, the four fundamentals of a Christian worldview. And I'll just list them briefly, and you can we can talk about them today. But 
the first one is, and these these make sense of what's going on in the world. This explains everything that happens in the world. It gives us a, a meta-narrative, so to speak, this overarching understanding of what's taking place that, number one, God created a perfect world. Number two, man rebels against God and, and creates uh, wreaks corruption and death and alienation from God. And the third fundamental is that God immediately in his goodness uh, offers a plan of redemption uh, through his son. And number four, that God will restore all things in the future. So those four fundamentals, we can talk more about them, but those really help us understand uh, what a Christian worldview, how it explains better than any other worldview, what is taking place all around us. I love that, David. And I would encourage Every believer, when they're sharing their faith with others, if any word, anyone were to say to you, give me a, a broad brush uh, understanding of God's word, you can do that in four words, creation, corruption, redemption, and restoration. That's right. So uh, we're going to be mentioning this several times throughout our series, David. So let's start with the first fundamental of a Christian worldview. Yeah. And, and how, how did God intend his design? Um, there's so many aspects of life that this involves. Maybe you would share some of those with us. Yeah, you know what's interesting about this, Bill? The, the issues that we debate over and argue about that are the, the culture war issues of our day were really established by God in the very first chapters of the Bible. It's actually really incredible to think about, you know, that you look in Genesis chapter one, the first chapter in the Bible, you see that God created the heavens and the earth and created light. And then over the next several days, he created land and seas and plants and trees, the sun and moon and fish. And then in day six, all of a sudden it says, let us make man in our image as a reference to the Trinity right there in the first chapter of the Bible, according to our likeness and let man rule over the fish of the sea. And then he said, God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and then he said, be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the, and fill the earth and subdue it. I mean, literally in the first chapter of the Bible, Bill, we find out that there's a pre-existing, all-knowing, all-powerful God who exists and speaks the, the universe into existence in six days. And he creates two humans in two genders, male and female. And he creates them in his own likeness. And he told them to multiply and, and rule over the animals, there's, to procreate and have stewardship. And everything was really good. So just literally in the first chapter alone, so many of the the basic institutions, I mean, think about how we battle over the issue of, you know, what's a woman today? Or mm-hmm. can you change your gender and so forth? I mean, this goes literally back, right? This is an assault, to be honest, against God's established design right in the first chapter of Genesis. So true. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm in Genesis 2 right now, David. What, uh, what, what is added in, in Genesis 2 that uh, would be part of the, the fundamental uh, creation? Right. Yeah, I mean, you just turn the page from chapter 1 to yeah. chapter 2, and there's just a ton of more things that, that God puts in at the very beginning, just fundamental institutions of life, uh, where he puts, it says in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Okay, so he's he's put work. Work came before the fall. Work isn't a result of the fall. Work came before the fall is a good thing. And then he commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, 
for from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, of good and evil in the middle of the garden, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. So again, two more things we learn about this first fundamental of God's creation, how he created this perfect design that he gave Adam work to do. And that was a very good thing. Oftentimes we just resent work. No, work is a, a divine institution that God created for us to do. Then he also gave us free will. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. How he said, you can eat from every tree in the garden except for one. That This wasn't an overly restrictive God at all. It's like eat from all the trees, but there's one. There was, a, there was a test here of obedience for man. He gives us a test of faith. And, and that's really what faith is. It's a test whether we're going to trust God and obey him at his word or, we're gonna, or are we going to obey our own human reasoning. But he goes on there. Uh, from there, and, and says in verse 18, that it is not good for man to be alone. And he fashioned a woman into from the rib of the man, and he brought her to the, to the man. He says, this for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And all of a sudden now, we heard about this incredible other institution called what? Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Okay, now just even fathom that, what we debate over today, what is the meaning of marriage? Again, it's all an assault on these original institutions that God established in the very first couple chapters of Genesis. It's so notable how the the secular worldviews of our day reject every single aspect of this creation, this perfect design creation fundamental that God doesn't exist, that man evolved. You can change your gender. Marriage is whatever arrangement you want it to be. Work is oppressive. And the other thing is about the stewardship of the earth, be a rule over the earth. That's flipped too. We need to worship the earth instead of rule over it. So all of this, Bill, is just a diametrically opposed worldview. And it all goes back to this very first fundamental. We just listed probably seven or eight things in the first two chapters of Genesis that God established that man just cannot have God ruling over him in these ways. Mm -hmm. David Wheaton is my guest. He is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can learn more about David at thechristianworldview.org. And David, uh, thank you for talking about creation. You did that beautifully. Let's uh, go to our our second fundamental, which is corruption. That really changes everything. It does change everything. And I I think as we transition from the, the first point to the second point here, you have to realize that God establish all these things for his glory and our good. God wasn't trying to spoil our fun by creating marriage to be between a man and a woman. This was actually for our our greatest flourishing and his greatest glory. But in, in our sinfulness, this this test that man was given was failed in, in Genesis chapter 3. Literally, the whole world and life thereafter was changed in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tempts the woman to eat the one tree that he wasn't to eat from, and she gives in, and she she eats from it, and then gives it to her husband, and, and, and he eats, and then all of a sudden this huge change takes place, this corruption, this second fundamental takes place, and says the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. All of a sudden, you know, before they were naked and unashamed, the Bible says. All of a sudden now, they, they had this guilt over sin. And what occurred in this moment of history, Bill, just changed everything. You, it would be impossible to overstate how it changed everything. Our, our world has been corrupted from that original sin, because not only did Adam and Eve sin, but we have all sinned thereafter. 
You know, Satan twisted God's word. He lied and injected doubt uh, into Eve about God. He, 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 you know, instead of being this test, Satan took advantage of it and injected doubt into Eve's mind. She ate, then he ate, Adam ate, uh, knowingly ate. He wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived, but Adam knowingly uh, rebelled against God. And then th- th- this, this original sin has basically just corrupted everything in life. It, it brought on disease and death and conflict and everything else we can think of that we just look at the world and go, whoa, what has gone wrong? I mean, this is the reason we have locks on our doors. Right. I mean, why do we have locks on our doors? Well, because other people will steal from us, will offend each other, will take advantage of another. This is all because goes back to the garden with original sin. Mm. This is strong teaching, David. You're doing a great job. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Wheaton is going to continue to teach us how important it is to embrace a Christian worldview. We're going to learn more fundamentals. The first fundamental was creation, and the second one was corruption. We're going to come back with a few more in just a minute. Well, books take you on amazing adventures. Wouldn't it be interesting to see what the Holy Land might have looked like through the eyes of Jesus? By winning Max Lucado's new book, you can do that. It's called In the Footsteps of the Savior. Now, with a special thanks to Thomas Nelson Publishing, you can win a copy every day this month. All you have to do to enter to win on the Faith Radio app or go to myfaithradio.com. Personally, I'd rather win a, a trip to the Holy Land um, I wouldn't have to go first class, but I, 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 I would prefer. But either way, I'd love to get my hands on a copy of this book, and I know you would too. So head over to Faith Radio, MyFaithRadio.com or the Faith Radio app. Back with David Wheaton. We're continuing our study on embracing a Christian worldview. I hope you go to David's website. You can learn more about him and his amazing radio program at thechristianworldview.org. All right, David, we've covered creation and corruption. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Adam and Eve's response to sin. Is it the same as ours? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. You look at how Adam and Eve responded to the first time they sinned, and it's basically the exact same thing we do when we sin. So they they sin against God. They feel shame, so they feel guilt as we should when Mm -hmm. we sin. The innocence is shattered, and all of a sudden they realize they're naked, and they they get some fig leaves, they sew them together to cover themselves. All of a sudden they realize they're naked, and they shouldn't be. And so they try to do something themselves to cover their sin. Right, that's called works righteousness. You know, I, I try to do I try to do good. I try to atone for my own sin. And trusting instead of trusting in the atonement that Christ offers for me, they try to do something themselves. And then they also try to futilely hide from God. I mean, it's, of course, it's impossible to hide from God. He's omnipresent, uh, but they try to. And when confronted by God, they what do they do? They blame shift. Adam blames his wife. They're the woman whom you gave me. You know, led me into this, and Eve blames the serpent who deceived me. So they're blame shifting. These are the same kinds of things we do all the time when we shift, when we sin. We we don't want to admit it. We don't want to take responsibility. And interestingly, that God is so merciful 
that he doesn't just destroy them immediately for their rebellion against him. I mean, they directly rebelled against God. But the just God does lay out consequences for their sin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And let me ask you, Bill, if these things are actually the consequences that we feel for sin today, proving that the Bible is completely accurate. He said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Um, if you've ever been around, you, you know, you're ask your mother, ask your wife, well, you know, what's it like to bear a child? Well, it's extremely, extremely painful. Right. And then he, then he, then he, then he talks to Adam and says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree, uh, cursed is the ground because of you in toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread and you will return to dust. Well, you have pain in childbirth. You're going to have conflict in marriage. You see that all the time. You have work becoming much harder with thorns and thistles. And the ultimate penalty of all for all of us, you return to dust. You, you die. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what happens. I mean, we I hate to use this as an example, but sadly, my dad, not sadly for us, but great for him. He went to heaven about two and a half, three months ago, and we put him in the ground and he his body, his body returned to dust while his soul and spirit went, went to heaven. But this is exactly what it says here in, in Genesis chapter three. This is, this is the fact of what happens as a result of the corruption. But the good news is like for my dad, we have such great hope based on the promises of God's word that though the body, the physical body goes to dust, goes to dust, returns to dust, that the soul and spirit go on. If you are a believer in Christ to be with God in heaven forever. So th- this corruption is so pervasive and proves so much the truthfulness of, of Scripture. This is why we groan in, in this fallen world. As I mentioned, this is why we have expensive alarm systems on our homes. This is why we have to go so- through security at the airport, because man is not inherently good and holy, that there's a, there's a corruption inside of us that will sin against God and each other. And so this The second fundamental bill, the corruption, is the bad news. It's what has gone wrong in the world. It's Adam sinned, we all sin, and that sin has corrupted God's perfect design. Mm -hmm. David, you also just made me miss your dad. I love your your dad. And I miss miss him. I know you miss him terribly. Thank you, Bill. I was blessed with a wonderful dad. And that, that is saying so much, and I'm so thankful to God for him. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, okay, creation, corruption. Let's talk about corruption some more. Um, now, it's the second uh, fundamental uh, that we're talking about is corruption. Now, how is that even even worse than upending God's perfect design? Yeah, because he, we, we talked about these consequences of of you know offending God, sinning against God. Well, the, the reality is a perfectly righteous and just God, which he is, also has a perfectly righteous and just penalty for rebelling against him. And it's not just physical death. It's not just returning to, to dust, as, as, we, as we just talked about. There's something even worse than that. And what's worse than that is in the everlasting or eternal separation from God in hell. And it talks about this in Revelation chapter 20. It says when at the end of the Bible, you go from the beginning of the Bible now to the very end, this the great white throne judgment someday where everyone stands before God. Both believers uh, get judged for their works and, and they're, they're saved and brought into heaven. But those who reject God's offer of reconciliation 
are, are looked up in the in the book of life and their, their names not found there that the terrifying language of they were not found in the book and they were thrown into the lake of fire and so th- this is you know just beyond even horrible to think about in e- eternal judgment but the concept of sin and god's judgment People will say this is what religions use to scare and guilt people. Any God who would send unrepentant sinners to hell for eternity is a capricious, he's an unfair, and he's not worthy of my worship. It's disproportionate punishment, the world says today. The penalty doesn't fit the, the crime. But what the world fails to realize is that sin is not just trifling with God. It really is open rebellion or like really like a treason. It's trying to upend the king of the universe. It's shaking our fist at the creator of all and saying, you know what? I'm going to rule, not you. And so the perfect holy God also has a, is also perfectly holy in judgment. But it also says the same side of the other side of the coin of this same God is that he's a loving and forgiving and a patient and a long suffering and a merciful and gracious God who is willing to forgive the repentant sinner. And that is the good news. And that's where the third fundamental redemption starts. All right, let's talk about that third fundamental uh, redemption. This is the good news. Exactly. So it goes from bad news to good news. You've gone from creation, God's perfect design of the world to corruption, that man chose to sin against God and that corrupted everything. And that's the bad news. That's why we think there's so much going wrong in the world. Well, point three here is the third fundamental is redemption. This is not just good news. It's better than that. It's the best news that God didn't leave us in condemnation. You know, we, we don't have to suffer the penalty for our own sins. He has a plan. He brought a plan of redemption into history, not just later, by the way, Bill, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned. And so you go back to Genesis chapter 3, again, right at the beginning of Scripture, uh, as part of this consequence of from sinning against God, God puts this line. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan here. There are the consequences for Satan. There's going to be conflict between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It's very interesting. This is, I think, the only place in Scripture that a woman is ever seen to have seed, usually seeds associated with a man. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting in and of itself because the seed of this woman is going to be a unique man. And it says, he shall bruise you on the head. So her seed shall bruise you in the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is the first reference to the gospel, to Jesus Christ in all of scripture that from a woman will come a man who's going to deal a fatal blow to Satan. And that man is Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross is going to deal a, a fatal blow to the threat that Satan holds up against us for sinning against God. And it says, you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, Christ will suffer a bruise on the heel that won't be fatal, but this will lead, Christ's death and resurrection is going to lead to a fatal blow on the head of Satan. And right in the midst of all this bad news, Bill, comes the good news with a promise. The first mention of a redeemer born of a woman. And this is Jesus Christ right here in the third chapter of Genesis. And that this is the first picture, by the way, because right after this, the God creates garments of skin for Adam and Eve and he clothes them. Instead of works righteousness, them trying to clothe themselves and cover their own sin, God kills an animal and takes their skin, a substitute, and covers the nakedness, the sin of Adam 
and Eve. And this, again, just pictures what's going to happen 4,000 years later when Jesus Christ is going to die on the cross and sacrifice his own life and pay the penalty for our sin, be our substitute, mm. so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for the teaching, David. We will pick this up next time. Have a great day. You too, Bill. Thank you. you. David Wheaton has been my host. We'll be right back with Mike Napa. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill I've been looking forward to meeting Mike Napa. He is an award-winning Arab-American author known for his coffee shop theology. He's written over 60 books with millions sold worldwide. And I think he is... uh, doing that because he's writing excellent uh, material and great books. And I'm looking forward to talking to him. Mike, how is it that I like you already? Oh, my goodness, because you just have great taste. So that's all there is to it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just like you already. So, And the book, I have to say, it's called Matthew Q&A for the Curious Soul. You know, if you want get, to get into a Bible study through the book of Matthew, you get your hands on this thing, you're going to have a blast going through it. I hope so. Yeah. Right? It's uh, hopefully part of the fr- a series we're calling Bible Smart. Bible Smart. Uh, and like there's a, yeah, there's actually a website that goes with it, too, if anybody wants to get to that. It's BibleSmart.com, uh, and that's Bible-Smart.com. Awesome. So i got to tell you, I was listening to your little theme song there. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's I know. Cool. I know. How do you get—what I mean, do I need to do to get a theme I song? I know. A couple more days, Mike, it's going to be—you're going to be singing it in the kitchen. It's going to be stuck I'm in your head. You. Yeah. That was so fun. <laughs> All right, let me ask a couple questions because I want to get into this uh, this Matthew book because it's so cool. Eleven uh, percent of Americans read their Bible daily. That's not a lot. Why do you think so many people struggle to read Scripture? Oh man, that's one of those uh, questions we've been trying to answer for a few decades now. I did a, a long uh, several years ago. I did a survey with um, a bunch of uh, about I think it was eight hundred uh, church going teenagers mm-hmm. just to find out what they believed about Jesus and um, and how they were uh, interacting with him and that kind of thing. And one of the things that really surprised me in that was um, the number of church-going teenagers that just felt like the Bible was unreliable. And I think that's a big issue. I think that's a problem for all of us, not just teenagers. Uh, we look at Scripture, and it, it seems like this difficult-to-understand book. There's so many different things that have influenced the creation of this book, and and we look at it, and we have a lot of people telling us, well, it's old, it's outdated, it's not consistent, blah 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 blah, and so we we find that that we even if we don't want to admit it, and uh, I want to be clear right now, I don't admit that I think the Bible is absolutely reliable. Uh, I've found nothing in it that has uh, changed that view, um, but I know I know a number of people who struggle with deciding whether or not the Scripture is reliable or unreliable, and if you want to eliminate faith in anything, you eliminate the source of that faith, and that source source is Scripture. So I think part of the reason why people have so much trouble getting into the Bible is because they're unsure of its reliability. Um, I I think it's 100% reliable. I think uh, especially if you understand 
the things that have been going on in the Scripture and how Scripture was made. And that's part of the reason why I created Bible Smart Matthew, um, because I wanted to talk about things that they only talk about in seminaries or in, in pastoral studies or from the pulpit, but I wanted to talk about them like we're sitting around in a coffee shop just talking about Jesus and trying to figure out what we think and what we understand. So I can take these uh, these well, they call them exegetical uh, standards, uh, exegesis, the finding meaning uh, in, in a text, in this case in Scripture. I can take these um, exegetical methods that seminarians and, and pastors and professors use, and then I just want to use them to talk in normal language, in normal people, talk about the Bible without making it weird. Yeah. Anyway, so... Uh, that's kind of my first thought about that. You know, first we we, we have we struggle to re, to know whether it's reliable, and second, we don't even know how to approach scripture. We don't even know how to open it up and find out what's in there and find meaning in it. Yeah, Mike Knapp is my guest. Has written a book called Matthew Q and A for the Curious Soul. Well, he's done a lovely job of of laying each section out, making it very understandable to the you know average student of scripture. Now Mike, just so you know, I'm a solid C student, so I really love your approach to how you've laid this out. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you to give us an example of your style in writing, and I could either ask you 10 questions or we could focus on one. You get to pick. What do you want to do? Oh man. Uh oh, let's go 10. Let's do it all. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> Okay. I better open the book up while you're talking to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's ask about Matthew. He writes an eyewitness of his time with Jesus. So let me ask you this. What is unique about Matthew's observations? Well, uh, what we have with Matthew uh, that we don't have with the other Gospels is that he's writing specifically for his Jewish, the uh, people of the Jewish nation at that time. Uh, and some of the other Gospels are targeted for Gentiles or just uh, making theological statements. But Matthew um, gives us this eyewitness account within the context of what's important in, in Jewish culture. And so because of that, um, Matthew actually uh, relies really heavily on the Jewish scriptures, which would be what we call our Old Testament. So now, obviously, Jesus, uh, Matthew wasn't present when Jesus was born or, or during his childhood, but he did have access to Jesus, and he had access to Jesus' mother and family, and so he was able to pull together uh, as a biographer the, the life of Jesus. But he does it in a way that really emphasizes the ideas of the Jewish uh, promises. Mm-hmm. That is specifically that there will come a Messiah, a Christ, a King, who will save his people from their sins. And what we see in Matthew then is that that's his focus, and almost all of his his, the context of his stories is based in that kind of focus. So um, I think it's like 50, uh, I'm going to say 50. I think there's 50 clear quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew, which is more than any, other, any of the other Gospels. Uh, and that doesn't even count all the times that he kind of alluded to Scripture or, or the Old Testament Scripture or times that he um, mentioned things that Jews in his time would have related to Old Testament Scripture. So this is the big thing about Matthew is that he is speaking to us within this culture and saying, hey, here's what I want you to know. This Jesus who lived and died, who some of you saw, some of you watched him work miracles, um, he's actually the promised Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God. Uh, the thing that's good about that is Matthew wrote this within the life, within between 25 and maybe 40 years 
uh, after the resurrection of Christ. And so he's writing to people who would be able to um, fact check him. Mm-hmm. He's writing to people who would look at him and say, well, I know that scripture. And people who could say, well, I was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. I don't remember that. So he's got to write in a way that is reliable and that is truthful because people are going to check up on him about it. Right. Um, and he did it in this time uh, that's so close to the actual event. I mean, we, we write histories and, and biographies of people from 100 years ago and call them, uh, you know, essential factual things. Uh, <laughs> we think nothing of the fact that they, we write, people will write a biography of Julius Caesar from 2,000 years ago and, de- and determine it to be academically defensible, et cetera, et cetera. But we look at this guy, Matthew, writing within like 25 to 40 years uh, of the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Imagine got really this eyewitness account. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Mike, imagine some guy wanting to write a comprehensive a documentary on New York City and he, he leaves out the, the 9-11 attack. Who would buy that book? Hmm. Uh, I guess 9-11 deniers? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. But if you're writing everything about New York uh, and you leave something like that out, you're not doing a very good job of it. So anyway, let me jump to another verse in Matthew. Uh, to Let's go to 18.18. Whatever you bind on earth. <laughs> All right. Now, this is always... What does bind on earth mean to the original hearers? What were they, what were they understanding? Yeah, let me... Um... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull that one up because uh, I should have pulled it up again because you're like the fifth person to ask me about this. Well, it's I didn't one. realize I didn't realize when I was writing this that this was such a, a big deal. I was just trying to answer the question. <laughs> that, um, you want me to replay the theme song? Give me a time to think. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> I, I found it here. So Matthew 18, 18. And the question in the book is uh, that someone asked me was what was the binding? Uh, uh, let's see. Now, what what did Matthew. the bind on earth mean to the original hearers? Yeah, yeah, okay. I got the wrong one. What did bind on earth mean to the original hearers? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it up because when they asked me this, the last time they asked me this, they were just like, hey, tell us what happened, what you meant when you said the thing on page one, I don't know, 157 or something. Well, I can change and, gears. Uh, we can come back after the break and talk about that if you want because I got lots of other questions. Well, you know, let me just find it. Do you know what page that is on the book? Um, I I can I can try to find it myself. Let's see. I think. no, because I should have brought this because this is one people keep asking me about it. Well, the idea of bind on earth. I'm just going to shoot from the hip here because I can't find it right now. Uh, the idea of binding on earth is not what we think it is. It's um, often been associated with I don't know. It's been associated with uh, um, spiritual forces and binding Satan and that kind of stuff. But actually, the binding and loosing uh, refers to legal system in that in that time it was the idea that when a a judgment was made uh, it could be a binding judgment meaning it was a judgment in force or it could be a loose loose, loosened judgment meaning it was a judgment that was belayed or 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 unenforced and so in this context when jesus is talking he's talking about um the the church discipline he's talking about when someone sins against you uh, here's the process to follow. And then whatever you bind or whatever you determine as a judgment uh, in this situation uh, that should be enforceable, if you, if you determine that on heaven uh, and earth, then I'll, I will support that in heaven. If you, I give you the authority then also to loosen judgment, to loosen uh, the, the binding. And so it's really, it's a context of relationship. It's mm-hmm. a context of someone has sinned against you, 
how will you respond? And the, the, the context there is all about um, reconciliation. It's all about the idea that uh, whatever you bind or whatever you loose, the purpose of that should be to reconcile with your brother, to create a place, um, a place where church can be a, a, a healing, a place of, of people coming together. Um, oh, and here it is. I finally found it. So <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Well, I, but I think I, I'm saying the same things here. Um, yeah, I know. The idea then there is that we have, we have a responsibility as believers first to call each other to live a life of relational integrity so that we, be, that we live out uh, what we believe in relation to the people in our body and the community of, church, in the community of Christ. Uh, and then we also have the responsibility to shepherd those who fail, which is going to be me. Uh, probably not you, Bill, but oh, no, most other people, too. we're going to have some kind of failure. And when that happens, we have to address that with the goal of reconciliation. And if we do that, then um, we can bind or loose whatever the, the legal judgment is that we prefer in our congregation. And Christ has given us the authority to do that. Uh, we just need to keep remembering that the purpose is reconciliation. Mm-hmm. All right, Mike Napa, I'm going to take a little break. But when I come back, I want to ask you about uh, what was unusual about the temptations of Jesus. That's the question. We come back, Mike Napa. He's written a book called Matthew, Q&A for the Curious Soul. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Mike Napa is my guest. You can learn more about Mike at NapaLand.com. NapaLand, N-A-P-P-A-L-A-N-D.com. He's an award-winning Arab-American author. I see that in your bio. What part of the world is your family from, Mike? Uh, my great-grandfather, well, actually, great-grandparents on both sides of my family, my mother and father, came from Lebanon. Uh, my great-grandfather came to the United States in like 19, I think it was 1917, Wow. 1918. And he, um, when he got here, they said, hey, if you'll fight for the United States in World War I, then you can earn citizenship for your whole family. So he immediately became an American patriot. He turned around, uh, went to fight in the trenches of France as a doughboy under General Black Jack Pershing. He was uh, actually gassed by the Germans in the trench and was injured, uh, but he survived. Hooray. And... Uh, after the war, uh, came back uh, with uh, American citizenship, brought his family over, and that's how the beginning of the Napa's began about a hundred and some hundred and some years ago. Hmm. My life is already richer because you told me about your grandpa. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, Mike, let me ask you about the what, what was unusual about the temptations of Jesus. Oh man, there are a few things that caught my eye. Um, I want to, I'll talk about some of the things in the book, but I want to think one thing that has come to my attention. I've talked to a lot of people who think that, um, you know, Jesus is out there quaking in his boots, uh, waiting for the devil to come and hoping he'll just succeed and all this stuff. And as I read the scripture here, I think, um, I think maybe we have that backwards. I think that actually the one who was quaking in his boots was the enemy. I think Satan was scared to death 
to come out there and meet Jesus. And we see that first because he waits 40 days uh, before coming out there. We know that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to wait, and then the, the enemy waited 40, 40, more than a month to even approach him. When he does approach him, he never touches him. He never does anything to him. All he does is wheedle and whine and, and um, try, to talk, try to talk crazy. When we see Jesus encountering any of Satan's minions and, and demons throughout Scripture, they all scream. They're terrified, just frightened to death that Christ has come because they think this means they're going to be facing a judgment. And what I, I, the way I understand that, then, is we look at Matthew um, 11. Uh, Matthew eleven twelve. that's where it is. It says, uh, from the days of John the Baptist until now, this is Jesus talking, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. Now imagine if you are the enemy, and you've been given uh, prince of the power of the air, you've been given the earth as your domain, and all of a sudden, a massive army, more, clearly more powerful than you, invades your territory. What are you going to do? You're going to cry and you're going to wet your pants and you're going to try to figure out what you can do <laughs> mm-hmm. about this army. And then eventually you might try out to try to negotiate with him. So this is the first thing I see about the temptation of Jesus. I think Satan was scared to death. Oh, yeah. I think he comes out there and he sees not just what we see, the physical uh, Jesus Christ, but he sees the eternal almighty God. And he has to figure out what to do. So he comes in timidly and weakly and, and tries to talk to Jesus. What I think is uh, interesting, to go back to your question, is that um, the devil is the only one who performs miracle during the temptation of Christ. Uh, it's, that's, that struck me. I think it's significant that the miracle-working Messiah, who's going to heal and raise people from the dead, and et cetera, et cetera, didn't perform a single miracle in his defense during the time of temptation, uh, despite the devil's repeated begging him to do so. Jesus refused to overrule the laws of nature on his own behalf, and history has shown uh, that he had certainly had the power. So um, he didn't call any on any power to face temptation except that which you and I and everyone listening has, and that is Scripture. That is the Word of God. That is the thing that we find to be reliable and valuable and true. Uh, and I think this is, a, this is a, something that's hopeful for us, knowing that we don't have to work miracles in order to stand stand true in our faith. We don't have to stand up and move a mountain or cause lightning from heaven. All we have to do is is speak the word of truth uh, at the enemy, and he can do nothing except face defeat. Mm -hmm. Mike, did I I hear you say that Satan performed miracles? Yep, he sure did. He took Jesus and miraculously transported him to the highest point, Jerusalem temple. Gotcha. and then he also transported him to a high mountain and gave him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. So these are actual miraculous events wow. okay. uh, performed by this, uh, the angel of light. Um, and he's the only one who did any miracles during that temptation. Wow, yeah, thank you for that. All right, uh, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. His followers were often confused by him. And his family at one point thought he was nuts. So yeah. there was a point where the family thought he had lost his mind. What was the reason? Well, he was saying, I mean, if we look at it, um, if, we, if we look at it from just a human perspective, imagine your brother is uh, walking along and he says, you know, hey, guess what? Uh, I'm actually God and um, you should worship me. 
<laughs> uh, right? Uh, yeah. You're going to look at him and say, are you kidding me? I saw you when you were four years old. Right. I, you know, or you have an older sister. You can say, I remember when you pooped your diapers or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So this kind of thing is, is, is understandable. It's not um, excusable yeah. knowing what we know now. But it is understandable. I have to be honest. If I'm there and, and when Jesus says the thing about, um, well, I can't tell you the scripture reference, but he says the thing about, uh, if you want to follow me, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. And a bunch of the disciples leave. And he turns to the, his own disciples and said, what about you? Are you going to leave too? The 12. And Peter says, uh, where else are we going to go? Uh, only you have the word of truth. But if I'm sitting in that crowd and Jesus says that bit about, if you want to to follow me, you have to eat, have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm probably going to walk out of the crowd. I'm probably going to think this guy is not, uh, uh, not safe in the head. Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of what happened. There was not, when they, when they thought he was, um, you know, a little mentally uh, off, they weren't actually trying to be unkind. They weren't actually trying to be, um, cruel. They were actually trying to rescue him. They thought that the eternal God of all, power uh, needed to be rescued because he was saying things that were dangerous and things that were um, unclear and things that were uh, hard to understand. And so they went and they, they just wanted to be helpful. They wanted to be good family members and uh, take him that. Mm -hmm. Jesus' response was, um, well, you know, they said, my mother and my brother, your mother and your brothers are here for you. And Jesus' response was, hey, uh, anyone who follows, follows, me as my mother and my brother. What I think is interesting about that is that Mary was there because the things that he was saying were natural outcomes of the virgin birth uh, and, and his divine nature. And so I think it's interesting that Mary went with um, the others to go to try to take control of him because she was there, right? She experienced the, the message of God when he said the virgin will, will Conceive and blessed are you, Mary, over all women. So um, I wonder about that. I don't have an answer for it. My my expectation is that at this point, one of her adult sons is running the family, and she is in that culture obligated to follow his leadership. Mm -hmm. And so she went along with him doing this. I'm not sure that she went along willingly. I think that maybe she um, had a better understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Mike Knapp is my guest. His book is called Matthew Q&A for the Curious Soul. Mike, uh, what are some of the reasons people disbelieve the resurrection story? Okay. This was kind of my favorite part of the book. When I was, oh man, we were running out of time. Sorry. Okay, I'll, right. I'll try to hurry. A few more minutes. <laughs> um, I was, when I was working on this book, it took me about a, it would take me about a week to get through uh, one chapter in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And then I hit the, the crucifixion and, and that whole chapter, and oh my gosh, I, I've read this so many times. I've studied it. I've done all these things. But when I hit the, the crucifixion of Christ, it just really, just really, I mean, it bothered me. It was just such an awful, awful moment in history. So um, it took me close to a month uh, to get through the, the crucifixion of Christ because it just kept breaking down in tears and I'd have to walk away from it for, for a couple of days mm. and come back to it. So when I finally got to the resurrection, I think even in the book, I, I capitalized, I put an exclamation point after the resurrection because I was just so happy to finally be there. Um, and, uh, 
that was that was that was the fun one to write about. But the core reasons that people just disbelieve Jesus' race and death is because they um, really they just don't like the Christian religion. Uh, I think that's that's really it. Either they don't want to believe it, or they don't like Christians, or they understand that Christians have a hateful reputation, and so they they are easy for them to believe that there was some kind of fabrication or deceit um, to go along with that. What I think is interesting is that nobody. Uh, not even in Jesus's time, uh, disputes that his tomb was empty. Uh, there is no historical record of a body of Christ ever, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing people can do is speculate. Um, and so it, if there is no body, something had to happen. Well, we know what happened was that Christ raised to life on the third day. And um, now he lives and sits at the, at the right hand of the Father, constantly interceding for us. But that doesn't stop conspiracy theories going around. Do you want me to talk about some of the conspiracy theories, or should I put that off for another time? Well, I'll probably put it off for another time, only because we got have less than a minute, so I don't want to, okay. I don't want to get you um, going down that road quite yet. We'll have you back. Um, but this is, uh, again, uh, a book that I think you laid out nicely, and you, you take us through uh, verse and uh, subjects and topics, and you do a nice job of, uh, of giving us a lot, a lot of things to chew on. You call it coffee shop theology, which I like. Yeah. Hey, let me tell you one thing. Uh, uh, my publisher has given me uh, a personal discount code that I can use to give to like um, friends and family if I want them to get 25% off in the book. And I've gotten permission from my publisher to tell uh, your listeners that they too can access the Mike Napa personal author code and use it uh, if they want to buy this book. And they can find information about that at uh, the website biblesmart.com. That's bible-smart.com. So they can get my my discount, 25% off. Uh, it's free money. They should just go ahead and go do it. That's what I'm saying. Sounds good. Thank you, Mike Napa. Really nice to meet you. And have a great rest of the day. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bill. You bet. Again, the Bye-bye. name of his book is Matthew Q&A for the Curious Soul. All right. We're going to take a, a little break, but when we come back, I can hardly wait. Dr. Jeremiah Johnston and I are going to discuss John chapter 11. That's in our Red Word series, The Words of Jesus. That is all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.